0: Good morning, everyone. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 today. Open your Bibles there. And we're going to see some of the final words that Solomon gives at the end of this beautiful book. It is said that a picture is worth a thousand words, but not always. Not always. Words are important. Words matter. Words Determine direction. They go turn left, turn right. Uh, words change destinies, live or die. Words bind you by a promise or a covenant. I will, I do. Lives hinge on words. And words matter to God. With a word, God created the universe. He spoke the universe into existence with a word. And he did not give us a picture book. He gave us a book of words. He gave us his word. Just a a little perspective here. When, When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, by that time, around 930 BC, give or take, Genesis and Job and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth... Many of the Psalms, many of the Proverbs, Song of Solomon had been written already. And here, Ecclesiastes is really Solomon's last will and testament. He'd been through it all. He's been very honest about it. And here near end of life, he is looking back and he is telling us how he's experienced it all. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He is both a positive and negative example He is honest, he is humble, and he is 100% dependent on God's mercy and grace. And I think it's perfect. Here, near the end of Ecclesiastes, part of Solomon's final advice includes lifting up the perfect word of God. The perfect word of God. And the reason we know that is as you look at this passage, he speaks of, in verse 9, many proverbs... Verse 10, words of delight. Verse 11, words of the wise. Verse 11, the collected sayings. And they're all given by one shepherd. And it's all referring to Scripture. It's referring to the perfect word of God. So in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 12, there's a lot of applications we can make. But it's talking about the perfect word of God and how if we are to do the will of God, we need to stay very close to the Word of God. The Word of God reveals everything, and and this passage reveals truth about the perfect Word of God. I'll point out three truths today. The first truth, we'll just go one by one. The first truth is the priority of the Word of God, how important it is, how preeminent it is, how how important it is. And start with me at verse 9. Besides being wise, it just starts that way. And remember, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Solomon to write this. He's not saying, oh, I am so wise, you need to listen to me. He just needs to say it. And that's why it's, it's kind of spoken in almost a second person. Now, what did he do when God said, ask me anything? Ask me for anything, I'm going to give it to you. What did he do? He said, please give me an understanding mind to govern your people, to discern between good and evil. What was God's answer? I'm going to give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. He is wise. And it says that besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, taught people knowledge. So he was wise, but then he taught others God's wisdom. And it says that he did it by weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher here is in league with the other Old Testament wise men who taught the fear of the Lord. People like Moses. In Deuteronomy 6, this is the commandment, Moses said, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. He's like Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 17. He sent the Levites out into the towns and the cities of Judah to teach the people the word of God. He's like Ezra, who prepared his heart to seek the Lord, to seek his law, his word, and to do it, and then to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. And there are many other Israelite teachers that would be known as wise teachers of the word. And here is Solomon, kind of head of class. Solomon, the preacher, Koheleth, the king, the convener of the assembly the one who brings the people of God together to hear the word of God. We know that Solomon had a role in leading the people in worship at the temple. The wise man in the Bible is the one who teaches and arranges for the transmission of the truth to others. This is what Solomon did, and he did this by doing three things that you see in this verse. He weighed, he studied, and he arranged. Weighing... Literally means to ponder, to weigh something. It's it's a it's a rare word, and it, it means that he carefully evaluated everything he was going to write down and pass on. He he was he was um, honest about it, but he was cautious about it, and he had a balance. There was a careful evaluation going on, discerning what to say. But he also studied. Just that just means to search out. He. He was very thorough in in searching out and studying and being very diligent to make sure that what he was saying to the people was what God wanted him to say. And then he was arranging. Uh, It it points to an orderly presentation. You know, there's an application here for anybody who preaches or writes. Uh, There's some artistic element. How should I arrange this? So he was weighing, he's studying, he's arranging many proverbs with great care. It was very important. There was a priority here. He was the king. He was in charge of a lot of things. He did a lot of things. They built a lot of things. Uh, there was a lot of policies and what have you. But his first priority was the word of God. And, and he knew how important it was to communicate through appropriate words. It's like Proverbs twenty five eleven. A word fitly spoken is like Apples of gold in settings of silver. So here is Solomon working very hard to to put together, to compose elegant and pleasing sayings to convey the faithful meaning that God intended. He's laboring at it. He's working hard at it. And his concerns were pastoral. They were not professional. They were pastoral. He's not just giving them a data dump. He's, he's not just giving them an accumulation of facts. He is, he is giving them what God wants them to have. And, I mean, everyone who preaches should do this. This is what 2 Timothy 2.15 is, is referring to. Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting it straight, giving it accurately. So wise... And Solomon is modeling this, the wise work hard at the beautiful discipline of presenting God's Word. But The question we need to ask is, well, is this primarily about sermons? Is it about preparing sermons? There are applications where you work hard to get the authorial intent of the passage. What did God mean when he said, what did he intend to say? and then you order it together in a presentation, and you, you give it to the people, and they hear it, they, they understand the word, and they obey. Where you, you bring the word of God, but you also bring your own words that explain the word. This is what I'm doing when I'm up here preaching. Where I'm reading the Bible, I'm giving you Bible verses, but then there's words I'm saying, and my words are not God's words. My words are my words, and and I'm also bringing in God's word, and I am explaining God's word, and you need to test what I'm saying to make sure it's accurate with what the Bible says. So is this primarily about sermons? Or is it referring to the bare word of God? It's a big question. I believe it is referring to the bare word of God. It's referring to the perfect word of God and the inspiration of it and the authority of it and the primacy of it and the priority of it, the preeminence of the word of God. And you can just prove it by by looking at Ecclesiastes and realize it's in your Bible and the teaching that you receive in Ecclesiastes is not random. The Proverbs were set in order and it teaches us God's knowledge. Through the life of Solomon, as he says, this is what I've been through. This is what I've done. This is what I've thought. This is what I've said. Here's what I've learned. Verse 10 tells us that the preacher sought to find words of delight. Delight. God's word delights your soul. It's dependable. He, He uprightly wrote words of truth. And Solomon then is attributing delightfulness and dependability to the word of God. And for those of you who might be tempted to think that that Ecclesiastes is just the rantings of the the pessimist, this is no work of a pessimist. This is the work of the transformed who trust God, who exalt God. This is not a book of desperate despair. This is a book exalting God. Words of truth. It's like when when Jesus was was uh, was still here on earth before he went to the cross, and people that were following him were just you know scattering when the going got tough, and he turns to his core group and he says, "Are you going to leave too?" And their answer is awesome. Where else are we going to go? You have words of truth. You have words of truth. Jesus even said to the father, Your, thy word is truth. And so here Solomon is focusing his energies on the word of God in his own life and the lives of others. This, this wise man is putting together words of delight, words of truth. Words of truth have a, a piercing effect, a, a penetrating effect. Like, like Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living It's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of, of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It's the word of God. And Solomon is teaching the people the word of God. He taught the people knowledge. God's word is priority one. He said in Proverbs The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. I think an example of learning knowledge is take your own life, and you see maybe how painful life can get or how perplexing life can get, puzzling, and you say, well, you know what? No matter how things look or how it feels to me or how it seems to me, If I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus and I'm trusting in in Christ's finished work at the cross and when he shed his blood for me and paid the penalty for my sin and then he died and he was buried and he rose on the third day and he's coming back and if I believe that, then no matter how puzzling or uh, painful or or, um, just crazy life gets, I'm gonna believe that God will save and sanctify as he wills and he wants to use me in the process. That's an example of learning knowledge, where you say, you know what? It's not just gonna be how I feel. It's not gonna be my assessment of life. I'm going to be driven by the word of God. So therefore, a believer can lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And and as you learn knowledge, as you learn the word of God, you say, my Savior is now sanctifying me. Even now, in real time, he is sanctifying me. And it re- requires uh, a teachability. It requires a, a humility of heart where, where you yearn to be taught, where, where you learn something, and you say, I- I'm going to keep learning my whole life. I'm not going to shut off the learning. I'm going to to seek wise, godly counsel, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to invite knowledge humbly and, and, and admit I have a lot to learn. I don't know it all. Pride, on the other hand, won't be taught. Won't learn anything. Wants to tell everyone what to think and do. Pride pushes knowledge away and says, I already know it all. There's a story in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, that, that captures that prideful attitude of, I've, I've got it already wired. And it captures that at a stage when pride has taken final hold on a man's heart. And there's this scene at the, at the borders of heaven, and a prideful skeptic is told, I can promise you, no scope for your talents. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, but I will bring you to the land not of questions but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. The skeptic replies, Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Listen, said the white spirit. Once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. And then the skeptic gives another objection. And this fruitless encounter ends with the prideful man remembering that he has an appointment and he hurries off to his discussion group in hell. You need to hear and receive the word of God and be willing to be taught the word of God. And and, and some of you need to learn to learn again. Some of you maybe shut off the faucet of learning and said, I've got enough, I know it all. Some of you need to learn to learn again. It's the priority of the Word of God. It reveals its own preeminence. It's of first importance. God's Word of truth to sinful man. Hear it and receive it. Be willing to taught the Word. Learn to learn. So the first thing we see is the priority of the Word. But then secondly, verse 11 Verse 11 shows us the the purpose of the word, the, the effects of the word of God. Verse 11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. A goad is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament here and in 1 Samuel. There was a large pointed stick, a stake, a large pointed stake or stick that that you would use to prod an animal in a certain direction. A shepherd or a herdsman would, would use it to jab or jolt sheep or cattle uh, to keep them from falling off a cliff maybe or running into some other hazard. The goads would drive the animal in the direction desired. Ecclesiastes, in the word of God, does not drive you to despair. It drives you to God. It drives you to the presence of God. It drives you to the one who has the answers. So the word is like goads, but also like nails. Now, in those days, there were two kinds of nails that could have been referred to. One of these large, large golden nails used in Solomon's temple, or you could have smaller iron nails that were used in doors and clamps. And these well-driven nails could be referring to tent pegs, a herdsman's tent, and he's pounding these nails, or maybe you pound a a nail into a beam to hold some uh, some utensils, or maybe maybe the shepherd drives these stakes deep into the ground to make a sheepfold secure. The nails are firmly fixed; they're well-driven. They are anchor points. The Word of God is an anchor point able to carry the weight of life. And it's a twofold effect of the Word of God it, it drives you to action, it secures your soul, it, it impacts your memory, even. It stimulates your will, it steadies your mind, it, it spurs your will on, and it sticks in the memory. I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you, God. God, by the way, God can use your words. Don't get me wrong. God can use your words to point people to him. But only God's word is powerful to transform. God's word transforms lives. And the word of God, like like goads, like well-driven nails, leads you. It secures you. It secures the truth firmly in your mind. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's leading me. And and your word I've hidden in your heart. I don't want to sin against you. It secures you. It puts you in the right direction and secures the truth firmly and fixed in your mind. An example of the word of God being like a goad would be maybe you're dealing with a struggle with a person in your life. Maybe they've hurt you in some way. Maybe they've said things about you And an example of of accepting the word of God like a goad would be where you painfully choose to forbear. And biblical forbearance is where you say, I'm going to keep this between me and God. I'm going to forgive the person. I'm going to keep this between me and God and not say another word to anyone about it ever. Or maybe you painfully choose to confront a person who has sinfully uh, dealt with you. They've sinned against you. And you say, I'm going to do what the Bible says. I'm going to go in private. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to slander. I'm not going to retaliate. That's an example of receiving the word of God like a goad. Let it drive you in the direction that God desires, not in the the direction that your mind desires. An example of the word of God being like a tent peg would be, let's say you're going through a time of fear or of anxiety or of some kind of, upheaval in your heart that causes you to not feel secure, maybe you're afraid, maybe you're anxious, that you would choose then to trust what God says about himself and about you rather than give in to the thoughts that are swirling around in your mind that are untrue, that you would be secured by truth. And what God says, like in Isaiah, do not fear, I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I'm your God. Surely I will uphold you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is twofold effect of the word of God. It drives your will in a certain direction and and then tethers your will from wandering off or swerving from the faith. Goads to direct you and nails to tether you. Notice that they are sourced in the one shepherd. They are given, verse 11 says, they are given by one shepherd. Now someone could say, well, maybe that's talking about Solomon. And I'm thinking to myself, Solomon has enough names already. The preacher, the convener, the king. He's not going to be at the very end of, of this book saying, now call me the shepherd too. This is about God himself. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1, the Lord, the shepherd of Israel. Proverbs 2, 6 tells us the Lord gives wisdom and that from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And what you'll see here is that the preacher's words are the result of his reflections on life, yet they are from God. And this points us strongly to the doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture, the Theopneustos, God-breathed nature of Scripture, that, that God divinely superintended through human agencies what he intended to convey in the Word, that there is one shepherd, God himself, who gives the Word. It implies this doctrine of divine superintendence in the writing of Scripture, Holy men of God spoke as the Holy Spirit moved them. That God is the real source of the words in this book. And, and especially in Ecclesiastes, it's not a cynical heart, it's not skepticism, it's not worldliness w- w- why Solomon is writing down what he's writing, because the Holy Spirit moved him to write. Scripture is from God, the one shepherd, your creator, the God who seems Far off at times is is also near. He, He knows you. He can be known by you. And he speaks to us through man's pen with finality. He uses frail, faulty, faithless men, and he writes through them with finality. They're given by one shepherd. Everything in the Bible is there by the definite purpose of God, the plan of God. God wants what's in the Bible to be there. Why sometimes, I don't have a lot of patience. I I think I'm pretty patient most of the time, I don't know, but I don't feel like I have a lot of patience. I know I don't have a lot of patience for anyone who, who says things like, well, I'm reading through Leviticus now. Oh, whew, oh. Like, what? That's the word of God you're talking about there. Oh, I'm reading the genealogies. Uh-huh. And God wanted every one of those names in there, and he wants you to read every one of them and appreciate them and realize that his word is strong and powerful and true, and there's different genres, and there's different, you know, every conjunction doesn't have a doctrine on it, but there is, there is the body of the word of God, and every word is true. He's going to tell us later, there's just too many books. There's just far too many books. And then there's this one book that God gave us. He didn't give us a picture book. He gave us a book of words. This reminds me, the way this is all coming together, you go, what God is superintending it and using human agency reminds me of the introduction to Luke's gospel. Turn over there, Luke chapter one. Luke one, verses 1 through 4. Here's what Luke says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. Luke's saying, it seemed like a really good thing for me to do, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's a lot of overlaps with Solomon's words here. Reminds me, and he's giving this clear account of how that gospel came to be written. And and you think about what what what's happening when 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 Solomon's writing down what he wrote down here in Ecclesiastes. He's conscious of his own activity with regard to the form of what he's writing, with regard to the content of what he's writing, that this work that he's putting down, yet he contends, the Holy Spirit contends, that the finished product is the word of God. And the canon of scripture, the collection of scripture, the 66 books that we have in the scriptures is finished. It is closed. There, there's no other books getting added in. That you, you don't have to have like another section to add more pages in. It's all right here. It's all perfect and finished. And holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Second Peter 1, And it is the word of God, not the word of man, I love what Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that you receive the word of God, not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God that does its work in you who believe. The perfect word of God. As they were writing it down, the prophets didn't always realize that sometimes they were startled by what they wrote. But Solomon here was giving understanding. He was given understanding by God and the Spirit moved him in writing Scripture and had him acknowledge it. God oversaw and directed the writing. The Spirit applies it to our hearts. We must receive it. We must yield to God's working. And in God's providence, he he lets himself be represented by many under-shepherds who would even attempt to stand and Open up the Word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we read, I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Like 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the one who brings the word of God to the people of God, may be adequate. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. That Ephesians 4 work of equipping the saints with the word of God for works of service. And he takes goads with purpose and nails placed with precision and they're given by God and they're to be received. It could be today that that you find yourself under this tent or listening via live stream or later some other day. You might find this in five years. I don't know when you're listening to this, but you might find yourself in a situation where you realize that you're unbelieving. And you realize you don't believe in the Lord Jesus and you're not saved. You're not, your soul is not secure in Christ. You're not forgiven. You're under the wrath of God. And if if you would repent of your folly, if you would repent of your sin, you must let God's word drive you and direct you and believe what it says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in his finished work. Believe that you will have forgiveness in him. Believe that you will have new life in him. You could also find yourself in the category of a wanderer where you've wandered off from the faith. You've, maybe you've swerved from the truth wildly even, or maybe just gradually, little by little, and you found yourself hearing a sermon and you're like, hmm, I haven't opened up a Bible in a long time and my heart needs to get defrosted. It's frozen. Don't let it go. Believe the word of God. Start reading the bare word of God. Listen to those that you trust Explain the word of God and let, if you would repent of your folly, let the word of God drive you and direct you and then secure your soul once again. You have the priority of the word of God, the purpose, the effects of the word of God. And then the third thing we see in this passage in verse 12 is the purity of the word of God, God's singular source of truth. And he says in verse 12, my son, the only time in Ecclesiastes that he says this, the only time. And he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. These? Yes, everything given by the one shepherd, the collected sayings, the arranged proverbs, the words of delight, the words of truth, the word of God. Beware of anything beyond these. And then he says, of the making of many books, there is no end. And of much study is a weariness of the flesh. It could be that he's saying that writing and study is praiseworthy, but there's no point in overdoing it. There could be a practical caution here regarding the physical effects of much study plenty of people have ruined their health by staying in a room and studying all day and never getting outside. DJ Wiseman said the would-be wise man will make his study a prison. and, And it's pointing to the weakness and physical frailty that often overtakes us. But most likely, this is a warning about the use of books rather than the writing of them. A warning in that day... Regarding the pagan writings of other nations claiming to offer wisdom. Beware. Beware of anything beyond these, all the things given by the one shepherd, outside of which caution is required, carefulness is required. And the way this is written, it's very personal. My son, take warning. Admonish, literally, it's admonish yourself. Admonish yourself. It points to the responsibility of the reader, the responsibility of the hearer to take this advice to heart and to apply it. It's a warning comparable to what is seen at the end of Romans. Chapter 16. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive it sounds like the warning at the end of second thessalonians 3 if anyone does not obey what we said in this letter take note of that person and have nothing to do with him then he might be ashamed it sounds like the warning in first timothy six twenty. 20 oh timothy Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it some have swerved from the faith. It sounds like the last words of 1st John. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't revere man's words. Measure everything you hear from man against the word of God. Now, I'm not talking about taking your math book and chopping it up. Learn math, you know. Learn your accounting principles. I'm talking about books that are claiming to speak spiritual truth about God. I mean, go read Huck Finn. I just read The Old Man in the Sea recently. Read books, but be careful. The making of many books, he says, there's no end writing was well established by 3500 BC onward books were first written on clay tablets and then papyrus or leather when an alphabetic uh, script came in second millennium BC brought the possibility of no end to books uh, there by the way many tablets and papyri still exist to prove that point but there was much in that body of books that the wise man warns against it was not from god the wisdom traditions of the of the surrounding nations they were well aware paul could preach in athens and and quote a poet so could titus uh, writing to titus the old testament warns though about pagan wisdom that is under the imminent judgment of god it's not god it's not from god and so he's saying in verse 12 listen up my son listen up here's the point my sons my daughters Whatever age you are you can understand what this is saying. Listen up. Here's the point. Beware of anything beyond the word of God. Be discerning. Have your senses trained to discern between good and evil and right and wrong. Many books look good and they're worthless. I've been thinning out my books for several years now. Here got bookshelves here at church. Got bookshelves at home. And there's lots of books that probably should never have been written. And just because they look good on the outside doesn't mean they have good stuff in them. Some books are not worth the paper they're printed on. Plenty of books I'm just throwing away. I'm like, I don't want anyone else to see this. I don't want anyone else to get this poison. Because God's word alone can change your life and save your soul. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Uh, Ungodly writings can poison your mind, can, can ruin your life and put your soul in jeopardy. I'm preaching a sermon right now, and the sermon contains God's word and my word. And my words have to be measured by God's words. When you hear the word of God preached, you need to be discerning. You heard the word of God read and then explained and applied. The only perfect part of the worship service is the reading of the word of god in the presence of our perfect god it's like your study bible take your study bible for an example here how many of us open up our study bibles and our eyes go directly to the bottom of the page to see what man commented about god's word you got in a study bible you got god's word and man's comments and so many of us just go straight to the comments you think about Nehemiah chapter 8, the people heard the word of God, the bare word of God read. They responded in worship. They, they stood up in, in reverence for God, but then they fell on their faces and they worshiped God and they said, the Lord, he is God. And then the Levites came around and explained to them what they had heard to give them the understanding. You need to make sure my words line up with authorial intent. What God meant when he said what he said. There's one accurate interpretation, and there can be many applications. We say, guys like me say this all the time, one interpretation, many applications. Actually, it should be one interpretation and probably a few good applications. There's an application here for preachers, but this is about the perfection of the Word of God. This is an admonition to heed God's Word above all of man's writings. You think about the sheer amount of information We have at our fingertips, day and night, 24-7. You can fill your mind and your heart with thoughts from everywhere, and it isn't all good, and much is harmful, and you must be careful. People thirst for new ideas, and they gobble up the most bizarre ones instantly. Some new philosophy, some new theology, embraced uncritically, and then get soon replaced with some other wacky idea, and it doesn't surprise God. It just doesn't. Second Timothy chapter 4 tells us the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables, myths. So you need to beware today of pagan ideas that contradict God's perfect word. it would be dressed up in all sorts of ways. Critical race theory, intersectionality, progressive, liberal, conservative Christianity. You can find some outlandish, outrageous, outside the bounds of scriptures on both ends of the theological and ideological and philosophical spectrum. And it leads to abandoning pure biblical truth and morality It leads to rejecting God's word and downgrading God and his word in the church, and you start accepting unbiblical ideas into your life, such as abortion or homosexuality or pornography or gluttony or gossip or unforgiveness. And the question you really have to ask yourself is, how teachable am I? How teachable am I and how discerning am I with what I hear? And how devoted would an objective observer conclude that I am to the perfect word of God? Because Solomon here is emphasizing the sufficiency of the word of God, the importance of knowing God's perfect word and not going beyond it. I mean, parents, you need to teach your kids the wisdom of the word of God. You need to teach them doctrinal truth. You need to teach them definitions. But they need Proverbs more than they need a catechism. Catechisms are great, but you need to give them the bare word of God. They need the bare word of God more than they need to memorize man's formulation of it. Read them the bare word of God and point out the doctrine. One of the leaders of Hume Lake just said this week, when have students needed truth more than they need it now? My heart has been burdened over the past year for the many students whose minds have been filled with the news more than the truth of God's word and who have spent more time in solitude on their phones than with their churches. R.C. Sproul said, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a technique, in anything and everything except where God has placed it, his word. The perfect word of God transforms lives. The spirit of God uses the word of God to do the work of God and the will of God and the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. Receive the word implanted that is able to save your souls because as Psalm 19 tells us, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Lord, we thank you that we have this final statement confirming your perspective on your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is the source of truth that is valid for anyone who sincerely is searching for the meaning of life. Thank you, Lord, that if we want to do your will, we need to stick very closely to your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it is your singular source of spiritual truth. I, I pray, Lord, that as we open our Bibles, we will see a thing of beauty and perfection, a thing of wonder and delight towering over all others. As you tower over all others, that your word is beautiful and words matter and they determine our direction and destinies, and the truth sets us free. And your word is better than all riches and sweeter to our souls than anything. And we praise you, we love you, and we pray in the name of the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Amen.